Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Joyful Balance podcast. You're being entertained here by me, Denise, and my lovely co-host, Mira. I'm a um, cognitive behavior hypnotherapist, and Mira is a neuroscientist and nutritional therapist. So between the two of us, we have the nutrition, the psychology, and neuroscience covered. On today's episode, as you know, we are taking you on our journey. So our journey takes us today to hormones. So tell us a little bit more, Mira, before we introduce our special guest. Absolutely. So hormones are hugely related to our mental and our physical well-being that it's almost impossible to overstate. And when we were thinking about doing this episode, I know exactly who I wanted to turn to. And that is um, a colleague and a friend of mine, Anastasia Smith. So Anastasia is a qualified uh, nutritional therapist and a functional medicine practitioner. She's also a clinical educator for a diagnostic systems biology based lab Mm -hmm. called Genova Diagnostics. And she has also focused her practice on mental health as as of about five years ago. And she works uh, with clients um, experiencing a full spectrum of of, uh, conditions, including uh, psychiatric conditions and neurological pathologies like Alzheimer's. Anastasia and I together have worked uh, blissfully in the past, and she is now, I remains a good friend of mine. And so I'm absolutely delighted to have her on the podcast today. So thanks so much, Anastasia, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Um, we're so excited (laughs) I know this is a this is such an interesting and it is an unbelievably complicated but fascinating uh bit of biology that that we have and so we're thrilled that you could join us because I I know that alongside the mental health piece um and the the neurological side you've also you've always had an interest in hormones too right Mm -hmm. um but before we jump into what hormones means for our mental and physical well-being, firstly, it'd be so interesting for our listeners to hear about your background and what led you into nutrition mm-hmm. for brain health. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, as I was sort of good, I was at university throughout my, you know, sort of late teens, early 20s, I always had an interest in alternative healing practices. and. Mm-hmm knew that I wanted to deepen my knowledge in at least, you know, one sort of directional modality. And so initially I was sort of interested in Ayurvedic medicine and, and, you know, Eastern healing practices, um, yoga, you know, things like that. And I was already practicing yoga um, since the age of 16. So I had that interest um, always sort of there and sort of in the background and and so I think it really started from there um, I experienced quite a lot of health problems throughout my teens I had severe acne I had um, issues with my menstrual cycle as well um, and also anxiety which I'll, I'll touch on later um, and I was on a series of antibiotics. I was put on Roaccutane, which I'm sure some people know what that is, but it's a very strong drug for acne. Um, and I think, you know, whilst Western medicine has its place, I also definitely um, felt quite debilitated by those sorts of interventions mm. uh, because they never really sort of got to the root of the problem. Yeah, that was really the issue is they, they didn't actually fix the root of the problem. And so I was also always sort of trying to understand, you know, the why and, and trying to sort of dig deep. 
Um, and, you know, when I finished university, I decided that I wanted to work in health yeah. um, after a few years of working in the area that I was studying in. Um, and I just came into nutrition because nutrition, I just felt like it's really it's the building blocks for health. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's the, the fundamental basis of, of health. And so that's where I wanted to start. And I decided to then, you know, take a, a three year diploma course in, at the College of Naturopathic Medicine, um, which is one of the you know, colleges that you can study nutritional therapy in the UK in. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, as I was saying, uh, I ended up studying at the College of Naturopathic Medicine for three years. Um, and during that time is when I started working at Food for the Brain Foundation, which is where I met you, Mira. Yeah. Um, so Food for the Brain Foundation is a charity that generates awareness about the importance of nutrition for mental health and brain health, um, Alzheimer's prevention. Um, and so obviously deepened my knowledge in that specific area. Um, the charity used to have a clinic under its wing called the Brain Biocenter, which is specifically a nutrition you know, clinic for people with mental health conditions as well as brain related conditions. Um, so it was only sort of natural that my my interest and my knowledge sort of deepened in that field uh, of health. Um, and I also struggled with quite a significant anxiety disorder, which actually manifested in an eating disorder as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was really throughout my teens to early 20s. And um, and I, you know, discovered that, you know, of course, there were various aspects of my history and things that happened in my life that led me to experience those um that sort of I suppose predisposition to anxiety and 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 therefore an, an eating disorder but um I definitely appreciated that there were some sort of physiological contributing factors that sort of kept me in that perpetual anxiety panic um nervousness sort of sensations that I was in this sort of constant roller coaster in mm. um, one of which, you know, is blood sugar. That's something that I, I realized later on is that my blood sugar balance was something that was um, always quite sensitive, yeah. uh, needed to be kept as stable as possible to be able to also balance my mood and prevent things like anxiety and panic. Um, that's just one of the things. But um, yeah, so I guess in a very long winded way, that's how I came to uh, sort of specializing in the area that I specialize in um and came into studying nutrition um and also functional medicine yeah because I was about to say like uh one thing I'd encourage our listeners to check out is I know you've done a lot of extra training particularly around the functional medicine piece as well to really round out um you know what you you know about how the body works and how the body the you know the the, the mind and body are completely interlinked in in terms of you know what if one is that is this is not functioning as it optimally as it could it starts to affect the other um and on that actually because I I know um something that you talk about a lot and I think it'd be useful for the listeners to understand is that you talk about whole mind health and I'm just really in intrigued to hear you explain um how you describe um whole mind health and what that means to you yeah sure um so the name whole mind health uh, came to me as a you know regular sort of marketing practice basically of what do I call my practice what do I call my clinic and my business yeah. um, and I wanted it to encompass the 
ideology of you know the mind and the body being connected mental health being connected to our overall health and vice versa and so that's the, that's the name that I came to and so um a lot of the content that I create on Instagram is to to try and really drive home that the mind and the body are connected we're you know interconnected web of systems and no one system is independent you know to to the other they're interdependent and they are all connected and therefore the mind and the body are also connected and so we cannot separate the two Mm. Uh, we want to understand and treat mental health conditions successfully um, and if we want to empower people to take their health into their own hands they have to understand how their physical health is is also impacting their mental health so I guess that's the whole sort of philosophy behind the whole mind health um, mm-hmm. the name whole mind health perfect well that leads us very nicely almost as if I planned it onto my next question <laughs> which is all around uh, which is basically all around like this is a very broad question so i you may need to break it down um, a little bit more, but I was just interested that, you know, what role do you, the hormones really play in our mood and our mental health? Can they affect things like the way that we behave? Um, I know you've kind of talked a little bit about blood sugar and it's something that we talk or I talk about prolifically throughout this podcast, but it'd just be really, yeah, just, just from your expert view, it'd be really interesting to, for our listeners to know how how they do affect our mood. Yeah, sure. So I guess um, uh, one of the sort of main issues that comes up quite often in clinic and and sort of complaints that I get from a lot of the the people Mm -hmm. that I see in clinic is um, hormonal imbalances or at least symptoms of what we suspect are hormonal imbalances. And um, when I mean hormone imbalances, that could be, you know, sex hormones, hormones. it could be thyroid hormones, and it can also be hormones that govern our blood sugar, sort mm. of balance and metabolism and appetite and satiation, etc. So I suppose that would the word hormone encompasses various yeah. um, systems. Um, but um, but yeah, so uh, broadly speaking, yes, yeah, so hormones can impact um, our mental health in various ways. Um, this, uh, you know, your sex hormones, for example, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, um, they all actually interact with the brain in various ways. So we know that they have an impact on neurotransmitters, for example. We know that they have an impact on things like um, neuroplasticity in the brain and things like um, uh, vasodilation, which basically, mm. that you know, uh, your your blood vessels are more dilated and therefore more uh, blood circulation is 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 running through the brain and therefore, you know, more nutrient rich blood is getting there uh, more energy so th- these I suppose are the sort of basic ways of describing how sex hormones uh, mm. as well as thyroid hormones um, and also insulin which is a blood sugar hormone can impact the brain um, they all have an impact on the brain in various ways um, mm. I guess when it comes to how does that actually manifest in terms of symptomology and clinical presentations is so 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 broad and and vast yeah Um, when it comes to women you know you might see things like anxiety you might see things like pms uh brain fog depression just general low mood um uh also things like migraines as well and uh and water retention um constipation and and diarrhea you know ibs related symptoms too around the menstrual cycle um and and generally speaking obviously women are more 
um, susceptible to feeling those, those uh, to, to experiencing those symptoms because of the fluctuations in hormones throughout the cycle. Mm-hmm. We have um, the, this incredible sort of network of um, uh, sort of interrelating, interconnecting hormones that, you know, are supposed to fluctuate throughout the month. But of course, you can get very, very, very huge fluctuations, which can lead to that that sort of symptomology. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the most common things that I see in clinical practice is estrogen dominance nowadays. And that's because I believe um, of our environment, our lifestyle, our diet, um, our lifestyle choices, basically. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's, um, I guess that's, that's that's my question that's that's my answer sorry Um, no that's perfect that's fine this is your your question it's a little bit broad so it's exceptionally broad go on Denise I have um, a follow-up there oh actually two so the first one is how would you best recommend uh, for somebody who may come to see you or in general uh, check their hormone levels or you know you mentioned estrogen how can we know that we have enough within the you know normal limits so to say versus there is an imbalance yeah sure that's a great question um so um uh, i regularly recommend testing in practice um one of which is a test that is a urine it's a urine test and um the ideal time to test your hormones is about seven days after ovulation five to seven days after ovulation because that's when both estrogen and progesterone are supposed to be at the most stable point and so typically that's when you should test and that will give you an insight as to whether there is an optimal balance between estrogen and progesterone mm-hmm. uh, and also testosterone um, as well, which is you know also very important for women's health um, and overall mental health as well. Um, so yeah, so that's, I believe, I mean, the test, if you want to know, is called the Dutch test. Um, and it's and it's a it's a commonly used test in functional medicine um and it gives you an insight into your hormone levels but also how you are um actually metabolizing those hormones and that's really a key component of hormone health so my second uh, my second question is in regards to a little bit of demystifying, if I can call it like that. So in this world that we live in, there are many cleanses <laughs> and detoxification of almost anything and everything you can find online, right? So some of us, uh, you know, me guilty of it in the past, uh, self-diagnosed with some sort of a, something is not right, not, not, you know, horribly wrong that I need to go to a doctor, but I'm imagining something is, you know, Uh, not correct in my body I go to Google I find who knows what kind of website and then I'm thinking oh detox of something what I'm trying to get to is how and when is going on a cleanse quote-unquote something that people should do or recommend or is that even real in the sense of what you can do with over-the-counter type supplements and other things 
what are your views there just broadly? Um, this detox uh, sort of um industry let's say or i don't know marketing ploy is uh, a very very big business um you know we are all going to experience times where we're feeling a bit sluggish fatigued brain foggy um perhaps our skin is not, not looking so great we're struggling to lose weight and that might be a sign that um you're not eliminating as well as you could be but uh, our organs are you know detox organs are very very intelligent mm. uh, and they don't need extra things in you know to be put in to help them detox they will do that for you efficiently however very basic things need to be happening um you know to be detoxing to be you know eliminating optimally for example healthy bowel movement <laughs> very yeah. basic but also fundamental if you're not having a daily good bowel movement um then you will not be eliminating as well as you could be and that goes with you know for example hormones mm-hmm. you need to be also eliminating things like estrogen you and if you're not doing that if you're not going to the toilet every day then you may be reabsorbing those estrogens and that can lead to estrogen dominance for example mm-hmm. um, uh, another thing is hydrating you know making sure that you're having good amounts of water on a daily basis that is also very good in, you know essential for for detoxing sweating exercise you know going going to the gym and, and getting your sweat on that's also encouraging the organ to do what it needs to do you know mm-hmm. to 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 sweat and therefore detox so um i don't believe in in doing cleanses uh, i don't believe in taking detox teas and things like that because generally speaking what these things do is they um, whilst they may sort of rev up certain processes that um, encourage those detoxification pathways they might actually make you feel more crap than good. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is because um, a lot of these products, teas, etc., they they may speed up something called phase one um, liver detoxification pathways. Mm-hmm. And, um, there are two phases of liver detoxification in the, in the liver, basically phase one and phase two. Phase one, uh, essentially what it does is um, it uh, packages, you know, these uh, toxins in the body into um, sort of uh, safe mm-hmm. packages so that they're not volatile and not vulnerable in the body, not sort of uh, sort of free to, to cause harm, if you like. And um, the issue is that basically uh, these compounds that are regularly in these supplements and teas and et cetera, they will speed up that, but they won't also concurrently speed up phase two phase two is how you actually eliminate those toxins okay so um so what happens is that you get this sort of backup in those phase one metabolites and not a proper phase two elimination so what happens is you get you you may have things drawn out of your you know uh, uh fat tissue for example because fat tissue is typically where you tend to store certain toxins like heavy metals for example mm you know, biotics, they tend to, they tend to store themselves in fat tissue. So when you are detoxing, also what can end up happening is those toxins can be pulled out of fat tissue and, um, you know, be there free to sort of roam about and, and, and potentially make you feel even worse. So mm-hmm. sometimes it can make you feel worse, but I would say doing the, doing the things that actually 
um, encourage you know the organs that are responsible for those those pathways to work as well as they could you know be working such as having a daily bowel movement drinking enough water exercising on a regular basis so that you're sweating those are the things that can really help um, maintain you know rather than buying into mm. um, detox practices supplements um, cleanses teas things like that yeah um, yeah so brilliant answer I think that's spot on yeah it's absolutely spot on I I am much wiser now but in the past I definitely fail uh, uh, you know in the trap of of course because you know these these uh marketing is so powerful isn't it it speaks to to uh to our pain points (laughs) and uh, if you're feeling crap then you're going to want to reach for anything that's a quick solution and that's typically what we tend to reach for is quick solutions nowadays and unfortunately especially when it comes to health that doesn't work it's not an overnight thing so it takes basically building in these daily practices that um uh you know may seem small but actually are huge Mm. uh, and they will go a very long way awesome thanks Anastasia that was great um and so thinking back to hormones one of the things that you know we've covered some other neuro we've covered some neurotransmitters we've covered a few uh hormones uh things like stress hormones and um oxytocin and a little bit on endorphins but one thing the couple of things we haven't really covered so much are the thyroid hormones and uh sex hormones and I know you've touched a little bit on the sex hormones, so I'm just going to pivot to the thyroid hormones. Could you tell us uh, tell us a little bit about the thyroid hormones, why they're so important for mood and what happens when they're out of balance? Yeah, sure. Um, so your thyroid hormones are obviously produced by your thyroid, which is the gland that is um, sort of behind the Adam's apple in your throat area. Um, and um, on a very fundamental basis, your thyroid hormones control your metabolism, temperature, Uh, cellular activity um gosh energy levels Mm. many things um uh even you know daily processes like bowel movements your thyroid hormone plays a role in so think of it as one of these sort of hormones that has this omnipotent impact on the body and it's sort of incredibly important for, for everything really um and um, typically you can see, you know, when there are issues with the thyroid hormone, very many things can go, be going on. You might have an excess of thyroid hormones. You might have a deficiency of thyroid hormones. There are obviously more complicated things that can also occur. Um, but when I tend to see women in practice, and I say women, I mean, obviously men can suffer with thyroid imbalance mm. as well, but it tends to be more women. Um because again, because women are more sensitive to these hormone fluctuations and the thyroid hormones, the sex hormones, stress hormones, they all they are all interlinked and mm. um, and so therefore we're more sort of predisposed to getting those imbalances in our thyroid hormone. Um, in terms of you know how does that present in in symptoms in practice, um, it basically can present as lower energy, depression um uh struggling to lose weight constipation uh, and this is when you have a deficiency by the way in thyroid hormones is when your thyroid is sluggish yeah um, uh brain fog uh so many things <laughs> um and 
And the converse, you know, is, is true when you, know, you have an excess of thyroid hormones. So things like um, you actually struggle to keep weight on, you get really, really hot very quickly. You're so intolerant to the heat. Um, uh, you might get a thinning of the eyebrows at the edge here. <coughs> Hair loss as well is one of the other things that can happen. Mm. Uh, anxiety, panic. Uh, so you can see basically two opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes yeah. to the thyroid. Um, there are many things that can impact the thyroid. Stress is a massive one because stress actually what it does, and I'm talking about the primary stress hormone, cortisol. Mm -hmm. uh, cortisol can actually prevent the production of thyroid hormone and it can also prevent a proper conversion of thyroid hormone and uptake of thyroid hormone in peripheral tissues. So what I mean by that is basically your, your thyroid, it produces two, two main hormones, T4 mm -hmm. and T3. T4 makes up, up the, the vast majority of that and eventually T4 will, will get converted into T3 in peripheral tissues and, and organs like the liver and the gut, for example. And for that conversion to occur properly, stress basically is a massive hindrance for that conversion. Um, also nutrition, by the way, which I can go into, into, more, into more detail. But um, but um, but yeah, so stress is a massive, massive problem when it comes to thyroid hormone physiology. Um, other things such as environmental toxicity as well. So we know that things like heavy metals, mm. um, uh, xenobiotics, pet, so things like basically uh, endocrine disruptors, we call them. Yeah. Um, so things like uh, phthalates, uh, pesticides, insecticides, PCBs um heavy metals um uh, chemicals that you find in things like fragrances for example these these things can actually have a negative impact on hormone physiology and not just thyroid but also sex hormone um because we're talking about thyroid i'm sort of more, more mm -hmm. of course yeah um so um so yeah that's also something else that can sorry i'm going into a completely different no area. not at all and and in fact i was going to ask a follow up question to that in terms of like the more environmental aspect of like what can disrupt uh so the endocrine system is basically a broad brush term for your hormonal system in biology but in terms of like trying to avoid endocrine disruptors what do you think like some of the top ones that what we could be doing to avoid these disruptors on our hormones? Um, well, uh, buying organic. Um, mm. I know that it's not available to everyone because it is expensive, especially now with, you know, we're all feeling it. We're all feeling yeah. It. Um, but, it, you know, buying organic is, is one of the best ways of avoiding unnecessary chemicals in, in your everyday life. So insecticides and pesticides. Mm. Um, they're huge hormone disruptors. Um, uh, if that's too difficult, then you can have a look at the at the Dirty Dozen, which is a list that the environmental, I think the Environmental Working Group or something. Yeah, like. yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, they they publish on a yearly basis, so they will examine the top ten foods that are most vulnerable to um, pesticide and insecticide exposure um and uh, you can just avoid those foods um and or just buy them organic make sure you buy those specific ones organic rather than buying everything organic mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that's one of the ways to sort of at least mitigate the, the most harmful exposures um they also by the way they also published some really interesting information about 
um, supermarket common, you know, popular supermarket practices in the UK and how each supermarket is what what are they doing to actually prevent unnecessary pesticide exposure are they testing their products as as rigorously as, as they should be and i uh, i can't remember off the top of my head who came out most um uh sort of reliable but i remember actually waitrose wasn't that great <laughs> waitrose oh yeah i mean that I, that I often you know shop in which is uh, was a bit disappointing but but yeah buying organic um where possible as well. Um, also, uh, not using um, household cleaning products that are um, basically full of crap. Um, so you can buy natural ones, or you can actually make your own. Um, mm. That that's also something else. It's a daily exposure that we are perhaps overseeing. Um, what else? Filtering your water. Um, so whether that's you know getting a Berkey filter. I know also quite expensive, but it will last for a long time. Um, uh, I recommend some a product called Osmio, which is a reverse osmosis um, filter. Again, expensive, but it's one of those long-term solutions, I guess. Yeah. And if, mm-hmm. if all of those aren't accessible, then just getting a Brita water filter at least is filtering something. Yeah. Um, so that's something else, you know, you can do. Um, and and then apart from that, just um really making sure that that um you know you're you're really hounding down on those practices that I mentioned previously so making sure that you're sweating regularly so that Mm. you're at least you know eliminating as properly as you could be um making sure that you're having a daily bowel movement so what comes with that is again hydration but also optimal levels of fiber making sure that you're getting at least 30 grams of fiber in in, you know every day throughout the day um and so yeah in a nutshell I would say those are probably the best things that you can do to mitigate that exposure brilliant that's really helpful I think uh yeah we're definitely gonna find that really really insightful um I didn't realize that EWG also does um stuff based on UK markets which is fascinating so I'm definitely gonna have to check that out yeah it, it it i'm trying to now i'm thinking it's actually it's actually not an environmental working group it's called um gosh i think it might be some uh, don't worry we can always we'll what we'll we do will add it on to it after yeah. yes we, yeah. we often forget stuff as well and we always uh, we'll put it in the notes and the blurb for the everyone, I think you so. might it's called the pesticide action network that's awesome. what I was yeah. thinking of and that's a UK it's a UK charity or organization so it's not an environmental working group it's um that's sort of a larger yeah world. worldwide so, yeah the pesticide action network is the one where you can find specific information about the supermarket UK supermarkets and what they're doing to prevent overexposure to to pesticides mm. fantastic thank you so much I'm definitely thank gonna have you. to check that out afterwards and I so, just, yeah, sorry, Amira. Uh, no, 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 you go for it. I just wanted to add uh, one one thing, which may come in handy for our dear listeners, is um, something I've learned from a, a GP a few years ago, and um, they were saying if you're struggling with constipation and you want to help yourself the natural way through the foods and the you know hydration and everything else that uh, Anastasia was mentioning she told me this particular GP she said eat the fruits that start with p 
So the plums, uh, the um, pineapple, papaya, she made it sound funny and fun to mm. me in order to remember it. So she was just like, prunes, those are your friends. Start and eat the fruits that start with P, with the letter P. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they can, um, prunes are, are great, actually. Prunes, a papaya is, as well, it's, um, can be very helpful for constipation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but generally speaking, you know, increasing fiber. So mm -hmm. um, getting in as many veggies as possible in your daily daily intake. Um uh, getting a variety of veggies as well so that's really important is not just relying on the same mm -hmm. but trying to diversify your plant fiber intake and you can do that by um, by sort of trying to get as many colors in your plate um, as you can um, or just rotating you know make, making sure that you're rotating your veggies and using different sort of uh, ways of cooking them roasting steaming um, adding them into casseroles, sauces, mm -hmm. et cetera, soups, um, that if you do that, then you will be hitting the mark, the 30, the 30 gram and beyond mark, basically, um, as, you know, easily as, as possible. So it's slightly random. I keep seeing, I've become obsessed with TikTok. Uh, it's, it's such a great distraction tool, but there's a lot of nutritionists and dietitians on there. Now, I'm not saying they promote this, but there's been the thing that's really gone around. I don't know if it's also on Instagram about the internal shower. And it's where like people add like a crazy amount of like chia seeds into a massive glass of water and chug the whole thing as a way of like clearing out their system. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I advocate that personally. Well, you know, if someone is struggling with constipation, it, 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 and and what they're needing is a bit of bulk yeah <laughs> yeah yeah chia seeds um flax seeds psyllium husk they're really good yes therapeutic foods that can help build your store basically and therefore help you eliminate more uh they, yeah i think they can i think my concern is like the is there enough water to fiber yeah. ratio yeah. in that drink yeah uh, you definitely have to increase your water <laughs> yeah yeah, because I was yeah. like, that would bloat me so quick, yeah. and it would be the worst. Experience. That's just me personally. But anyway, sorry, I completely digress. No, um, no I uh, think it's a very important subject, and it's it's one that I have been seeing time and time again uh, in my other uh, job, where it goes. It's, it's such a taboo subject as well, where people mm. don't talk about it, and they don't you know they don't even look for help if they don't go to the bathroom regularly and i just wanted to point that out and say guys <laughs> you have to whatever comes in has to come out at some point in some way you can't just eat and drink without ever going to the bathroom or you know going as rarely as once a week that's not healthy necessarily so please um, check no, your bowels no it's funny because um I think because of what you've just said, the fact that, you know, that talking about going to the loo is such a, um, I don't know, it's not talked about enough. I guess people don't really want to be talking about their daily bowel movements. But um, because of that, I think what people sometimes don't know, it, it, they don't know what is normal. Mm. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I have, before I see a client, I have them do a medical um, questionnaire, <clears throat> like an intake form. And I ask them, of course, you know, what they're, bowel habits are like and are they having a daily bowel movement 
and what's normal you know for them and they might say yeah I have, I have a re- I'm regular and I'm like okay so what's regular for you are oh, three times a week I'm like that no that's not regular mm. um, it needs to be daily it really needs yeah. to be daily. and especially for people that suffer with women that suffer with hormone imbalances yeah because, and you know things like the mood symptoms that go with those hormone imbalances like PMS um anxiety depression around the menstrual cycle yeah 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 well I'd say for also breaking down a taboo just just spend time with the toddler you, yes. <laughs> I actually on the weekend played a game with my niece when I was babysitting her which was match the poo to the animal it was a game so wow. there is yeah there is I mean when you're toilet yeah. training a, a, a child there there are no boundaries like put it that way that's the thing that really confuses the hell out of me when you're around young mothers or mothers in general with their children and you know and dads and everybody oh did did she go to the bathroom yes she did it was yes, color. it was something like this it yeah. was but then it's like somebody erases our brains, we become adults, and then we never speak about it. It's like, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah. I'm not saying it's dinner party conversation. But, <laughs> you know, you no. need to you need no. to make sure that you educate yourself about it and then seek yeah. professional help if you think it's something is up. But you can't know something is up if you don't realize that, as you're saying, Anastasia, that what you do is not regular and not normal. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Um, okay, so so we just just to make sure that we I don't forget to answer all all the questions. We were kind of just very briefly there talking about sort of PMS, uh, particularly problems that that women experience because of the fluctuation hormones and because for us like well it's complicated for everybody but it's especially complicated for women. Um, and I was just wondering if I could ask like you know about the sex hormones. I know we talk about the three, generally three main ones, so estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Uh, we've touched on them a little bit already. So I was just wondering if you could give us any more color in terms of like just how like much they can affect mood. And perhaps like, I know we've talked a lot about more about estrogen and progesterone. Testosterone might be one that people just really aren't aware of and how yeah, it affects mood. Absolutely. It's huge, actually. It's something that I see quite a lot. Um, because I mean, in, outside of my work as a clinician, I work as as I as you mentioned at the beginning, I work for a, um, a lab, and so I'm looking at test results on a daily basis. And testosterone mm. uh, is is often incredibly low in women that are chronically stressed. And um, testosterone is not just a male hormone; it's it's also incredibly, incredibly important for women. Um, it helps us feel vital. It helps us feel energized. It also gives us um, it it gives us sort of motivation and drive and um, helps with our cognitive function and also libido, which is unsurprising, but that's important, you know? Absolutely. Um, and so I do sometimes see women who, women who are chronically stressed have been, you know, PTSD or just chronic stress for a long period of time are so depleted metabolically. And that translates to low levels of testosterone, also DHEA, which is another um, androgen. Mm. Um, and um and and also really it does represent our metabolic sort of reserve and resilience um and we often see this sort of the the scale has tipped towards the cortisol which is the stress hormone and is the more catabolic hormone away from the dhea which is more of the sort of anabolic um sort of the, the hormone that really represents our metabolic reserve 
Um, And so it's really important. I I cannot overstate more that um, managing your stress is perhaps the most important thing that you can do. Um, And back to your question, Mira, about, you know, actually what does estrogen progesterone do for our brain? Because, of course, it's not just testosterone, estrogen progesterone as well. Um, Estrogen, for example, um, it, it often it often gets sort of the the um what's the word that I'm looking for uh a bad rap I don't know but yeah absolutely I agree but estrogen um for example it can affect the turnover of serotonin in the brain um and a lot of people will have called it nature's Prozac because mm. it, it has an impact on serotonin um it also modulates dopamine it how ha- I think I mentioned at the beginning it helps with neuroplasticity it mm-hmm. actually stimulates something called BDNF which is brain derived neurotrophic factor um a compound that helps that stimulates which as you know as a neuroscientist um stimulates the growth of new brain cells so um that's just estrogen and then progesterone does the does some of these things as well so it does equally have an important impact on the brain but particularly it stimulates something called GABA which is the brain's primary inhibitory neurotransmitter that helps to keep the balance between these excitatory neurotransmitters um, and inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA in check Um, so it helps to calm things down it helps you feel nice and relaxed interestingly alcohol stimulates GABA it's that feeling of feeling quite chill you know oh yeah yeah if you've uh yeah I mean I don't I don't advocate this but if you've ever taken benzodiazepines which acts on GABA which acts on GABA and and basically uh-huh. helps you to relax yeah this yeah it's my favorite neurotransmitter GABA is my favorite neurotransmitter for a reason. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so, um, you know, with women that have, for example, estrogen dominance because their progesterone is quite low um, and maybe their estrogen is just too high, um, um, they might not be getting enough of that GABA, basically, Mm. Um, particularly in the second half of their cycle, the luteal phase, which is where progesterone is supposed to be most dominant. and and so really you should be feeling like that in your second half of your cycle you should be feeling quite relaxed quite chill sort of thing that's the, that's that's sort of the thing that is supposed to stimulate um but often that's not the case because of this imbalance between estrogen and progesterone there are two different types of metabolites of progesterone one of which is the one that actually acts on the GABA receptors in the brain sometimes women also have an imbalance between these two different metabolites um, genetically might not be as good um, as the next woman to be able to produce the specific progesterone metabolite that acts on GABA receptors, or they might have, I don't know, problems with the GABA receptors, for example, in the brain that aren't picking up or being insensitive enough to that GABA. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that that's just a very sort of broad way of 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 explaining how hormones can affect your mental health. But no, but I mean, that's a hugely important insight. And I think it goes to show why something like testing can be so valuable, because as Anastasia is kind of saying, the, the Dutch test looks at at least some of these metabolites. So basically the way that your body's processing um, your hormones, which is a massive marker um, in terms of exactly being able to pinpoint where your pain points are for you biologically, that can then be having a real impact on your mood. Um, and this is where the the benefit is of work of if you can working with professionals or doing some some digging um, for yourself to understand 
exactly what are these finite things that are, are causing this imbalance that then you can use different lifestyle habits and practices um, that you can use to to pinpoint that specific thing that is happening for you metabolically mm. um, and that leads me really nicely onto kind of the last question that I have for you which is what are some of your top tips I know we've talked a bit about exercise hydration elimination so so yeah. having regular bowel movements and of, of course avoiding as much as you can um, environmental toxins are those kind of your main tips for hormonal health are there any that, that we perhaps haven't yet mentioned that you would recommend for someone who's looking to try and who knows that they maybe have a hormonal imbalance or just wants to improve their overall well-being and making sure that you know they're on top of that aspect of their health uh yeah so those are those are some of the top ones for sure um but in terms of adding on to that I would say um we briefly spoke about it at the beginning um managing your blood sugar levels because mm. um basically if you're eating a diet that's high in refined carbohydrates and high in sugars and processed foods your blood sugar levels will undoubtedly be all over the place. And what that means is that your insulin is also all over the place because insulin is the primary hormone that actually transports the sugar in your circulatory system into your cells and into yeah. the liver. Um, and, um, and what happens is that when your insulin is spiking in the way that it does when you eat sugary foods, um, something called sex hormone binding globulin reduces mm -hmm. our sex hormone binding globulin is a protein that actually binds binds to excess estrogen testosterone and so it helps to keep your estrogen testosterone in check mm. um, and prevents there, there being too much of it to yeah. impact on receptors and tissues in the body um, what then can happen is that you can get an imbalance in your estrogen um, you can get an imbalance also in the type of testosterone because um, there are different types of testosterone and having your blood sugar levels all over the place, eating foods that are high in sugars, increases the production of a very potent testosterone called dehydrated testosterone that actually leads to acne. It leads to facial hair growth. Um, also, you know, growth around your breasts as well. Um, and, and can also, you know, basically lead to a regular menstrual cycle too. Mm. cysts in the ovaries as well. Um, so, um, making sure that you're not eating those foods and instead of that making sure that you're eating optimal levels of protein amounts of protein in your, in your daily diet in addition to that good levels of fiber and healthy fats that are all going to satiate you and keep your blood sugar levels nice and you know stable throughout the day mm. that, that will help your hormones um so in terms of you know what you know quantities because it's it's one thing me saying eat more protein but how much protein for example yeah um really and truly you should be getting a, at least a gram of uh protein per kilogram of weight mm. so what that means is that if you are 65 kilos you need to be getting around 65 grams to 70 grams of protein a day that's actually you know it, it it's quite difficult <laughs> to, mm. you're not eating real food you know if you're having for example porridge in the morning or toast you're not going to be getting that amount of protein. Yeah. So you really need to be moving towards um, towards foods that are, you know, um, um, 
more savory, for example, in the morning, um, less carbohydrate focused um, uh, and more focused on uh, things like um, uh, in terms of proteins. And if you're not vegetarian, of course, you know, a good quality meat, fish, poultry, eggs, organic, if possible. I try to encourage people to buy organic if they can mm. have the financial means to do so. Um, of course, not only because of the quality of the product, of the actual meat and the nutrient value, but also ethically for the animal um, yeah. and for the environment. Um, and if you're not, you know, if you're vegetarian, if you don't eat those foods, then you really need to be getting, um, you need to be getting uh, optimal levels of pulses. And in, in addition to pulses, whole grains. So the, the combination of those two foods together will give you a complete source of amino acids, essential amino acids in one go, rather than having them separately throughout the day and sporadically. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, that's going to help to satiate you and help to meet those protein levels as, as much as possible. But that really is so important, I'd say, in addition to what you, you know, to the other things that I've been speaking about. And then lastly, and this is just a very specific thing, like thing I guess, um, that you've probably heard before. And, and if you've ever looked into nutrition for balancing hormones, you would have undoubtedly come across. And that's eating cruciferous vegetables. Um, and the reason for that is because they have these compounds called glucosinolates in them that eventually turn into something called indole-3-carbonyl, which actually helps estrogen clearance um, from the liver. Um, and that's really important to maintain balance between estrogen and progesterone. So cruciferous family of vegetables, that's things like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, kale, um, uh, rocket as well, watercress bok choy or pak choy, however you, however you want to call it. But these things are really, really, um, they actually ha have therapeutic compounds in them to support the liver's detoxification pathways. So that's also something else that you can maybe add in if you have or suspect that you have hormone imbalances. And that will naturally incre increase your veg, um, sorry, your fiber intake as well. So mm. by having, you know, two, three cups of those types of veggies in your daily diet, you'll be hitting that mark amazing that's great advice and what a perfect time of year to be talking about this as we're kind of heading into more wintry foods and yeah, they're, yeah. they're extraordinarily seasonal yeah exactly and actually I find this is the easiest time of the year to get those types of veggies in um mm. and um yeah I mean the summer is more for salads and things like that and while salads are great they're very high in water so they're not actually they yeah. will of course be high in fiber but not as much as vegetables like you know the cruciferous yeah. vegetables yes. the root vegetables which are naturally in season now so it's good timing to try and get them in your diet all right well yeah that's it I'm, I'm definitely gonna add in some sprouts uh, I think it's that time yeah. of year to get back in them into my <laughs> shopping cart um I'm very happy about cauliflower she's my favorite Oh yeah, cauliflower is yes. great if you tolerate uh, it. <laughs> yeah. oh, tolerate uh, it so. I absolutely love it, uh, uh, and I recently had it in uh, one of the markets. It was purple. I was yes. so blown away. I was completely because I grew up thinking cauliflower is white and white only, and when I saw it purple, I was just like, oh! And then I found out that depending on where you are in the world, it can be also in other colors, and I was completely yeah. blown away. I've seen oranges, I think. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, Anastasia, can I say we've been thoroughly spoiled by your info today. Um, yes. I'm so grateful. We're both so grateful that you came on the podcast to chat to us. This has been so useful. And no you've problem. been an utter delight. Um, yeah. And so with that, 
guys, just as a reminder for all those who are listening, please, pretty please give us a uh, like, follow, subscribe to us. Um, if you can give us a rating, that would be amazing. We'll put um, Anastasia's info out for you as well in case you want to check out her Instagram page, get in touch with her. We're also free for any questions. Um, so don't forget to, you can always get in touch with us via our email address, which we'll put in the show notes. But uh, on that note, we're going to love you and leave you. And thank you so much, everyone. You're welcome. Bye. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.